0: Well, it doesn't happen all the time, but uh, I had a moment this last week where I remembered why it is that I went into an engineering undergrad degree 25 years ago. I was watching a BBC documentary about an ancient device called the Antikythera mechanism. I don't know how many of you have heard of the Antikythera mechanism, but about 100 years ago, some Greek divers... A Sponge divers were diving off the shore of the Greek island of Antikythera in the Mediterranean, looking to harvest some sponges. And what they found instead was the cargo of a 2,000-year-old Roman ship that had wrecked in the Mediterranean. They were finding coins and bronze statues. And, and among the rubble, they found this device called the Antikythera mechanism. This is what they call I have a picture of it. We'll put it up. On the screen this is what they found at the bottom of the ocean and they brought it up from the ocean they put it in a you know greek museum with all the other uh, stuff that they had found there and so on and it kind of sat there for a long time until actually quite recently a team of mathematicians and scientists and archaeologists and historians got together and decided to try and figure out what this mechanism actually was they could tell Uh, And maybe you saw too, there's a gigantic wheel, a gear, right in the middle of the mechanism. And they began to take some diagnostic imaging pictures, x-rays, and other stuff, to sort of try to understand what else was involved in this mechanism. What they discovered was that behind the gears, there were more gears, until they actually pieced together the the reality that there were probably 30 interlocking gears that were a part of this mechanism. Um, they began to count the teeth on the gears and found that the gears were had a really odd number of teeth on them, 19 and 53 and 223, like not regular numbers for, for gears, teeth on a gear. They began to read uh, the inscriptions, uh, which were dates on some of the surfaces, and they were able to figure out by the inscriptions that this device was, in all likelihood, designed by Archimedes, the greatest um, Greek mathematician and inventor, you know, in, in Greek history, maybe in the ancient world. Um, and slowly, by examining how this thing was pieced together, they began to figure out what it is. Some of the, one of the mathematicians figured out that some of the gearing ratios actually mathematically corresponded to the movement of the stars. And, and they figured out that what this is, is the world's oldest analog computer that was designed to calculate the movement of the stars and the sun and the moon in order to predict astrological events like eclipses and the you know the conjunction of various planets in the star in the sky and so on i 've got a picture of actually the machine as it 's been recreated sort of an exploded view picture of the machine on the one side you can see an astrological calendar where the the computer can actually calculate the future dates of some of these astrological events. And then on the other side, there's a working model of the solar system the way the Greeks understood it at the time with the earth in the middle and the moon and the stars uh, and the five planets and the sun orbiting around it. And what I found that was fascinating to me was not so much this incredibly ingenious machine that Archimedes had designed 2,000 years ago. What was more fascinating to me was how the scientists and the mathematicians and the archaeologists and the historians could examine this device, and by figuring out how it was made, they could determine what it was made for. And truth be told, there's a a part of that that underlies this series that we're in right now, that we're trying to in a sense, figure out or think about how we are made as people, as human beings, and believing that if we understand how we are made, it will tell us what we are made for. So last week, Jeff talked about how the dreams that we dream and, the, and the, the yearnings that we have, the cravings both fulfilled and unfulfilled, the things that keep us up at night and the, what soaks our pillows with tears, the, all of those cravings and yearnings in life, those are all at some level a reaching out for an encounter with the divine, that we were built to live in a relationship with God. And so Jeff talked about last week the kinds of practices that can help us live a lifestyle of connecting with the presence of God. Well, this morning we're going to talk about what it looks like to, to experience an invitation to people, an invitation to community, because over the last number of decades, scientists have been demonstrating that human beings are built to live in relationship. Maybe you've seen some of these studies with uh, babies, infants, in orphanages or in various places. The, the psychologists do studies with babies to kind of measure the developmental impact on Uh, the growth of infants when care is withheld by their caregivers, when they're unable to make meaningful emotional connections uh, in early infancy. And they've discovered that it is actually physiologically, psychologically impossible for for an infant to develop into a mature human being if the care, loving relationship is withheld from them especially in those early years. Um, There have been studies done with inmates who have been held in solitary confinement for long periods of time. And these studies demonstrate that bodies begin to break down in the absence of contact with other people. Uh, Dizziness begins to set in and the heart begins to palpitate. I mean, think about that. Your heart begins to malfunction if you are forced to live in isolation from community. Um, psychologically, inmates begin to to experience depression and um, hallucinations and even suicidal tendencies. That if you can't live in relationship with other people, your brain will invent people for you to be in relationship with, but because that's not sustainable, you will eventually begin to feel that life is not worth living apart from human contact. Studies have been done on the other side, too, about how relationships uh, contribute to human flourishing. Um, there's a study done that said that people who live, are living in long-term committed relationships tend to have a life expect- expectancy that is, on average, three years longer uh, than people who don't have committed long-term relationships can extend your life. It actually helps you manage stress and reduces blood pressure. It makes you more immune to viruses like the common cold. People who are surrounded by a loving, supportive network actually catch colds less often. It boosts your immunity. Um, It makes you experience literally a richer quality of life. Psychologists have demonstrated that doubling the number of close, loving friendships you have has a greater impact on your psychological status than doubling your income. We're made to live in relationships. But you don't need science to tell you that because you know that experience probably on both sides of the coin. You know what it's like to sit in a room like this one, full, and to feel all alone. You know what it's like to uh, sit at home on New Year's Eve, to find out about the party after the fact, and to wonder why uh, you weren't allowed to be a part of it. You know what it's like to have a thousand friends on Facebook and nobody to talk to. And you know what it's like to experience the investment of loving community in your life. We're built to live life. Human beings can't even be human beings in the absence of loving community, because we are created in the image of a God who is, at God's core, community, loving relationship. Jeff, Mentioned this last week, but the Bible says that there is one God, but that the one God who is is a God who lives in eternal community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal, unbreakable relationships of love with each other. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. Yet all three are one God joined together as three distinct persons united indivisibly by an unbreakable bond of love. The ultimate reality of the universe is loving community among diverse people. In fact, theologians have talked. uh, uh, Well, I'll read you this passage from 2 Corinthians where the Bible talks about the three persons of the Trinity. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, the amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God the Father, the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These three Members of the Trinity joined in loving relationship. Theologians have spoken since the earliest days of the church of this doctrine called the eternal generation of the Son. Which essentially means that God the Father for all of eternity has been perpetually generating the presence of God the Son. There was never a time... When God the Son didn't exist in the past or won't exist in the future, he has existed for all of eternity precisely because God the Father has been perpetually generating the presence of the Son because, get this, God cannot be God except in loving relationship with another being. And out of the love that the Father and the Son share flows the third person of the Trinity, the the presence of the Holy Spirit. My point is this. God can himself cannot be who God, is, who God is and God cannot do what God does except in the presence of the loving community among a diversity of people. That's the fundamental nature of who God is. And we, the Bible says in Genesis 1.27, are created in his image. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God simply means that we are created in the likeness of God to such a degree that you can look at what human beings are like and determine something of the nature of God. And in this instance, what that means in part is that human beings are intended to mirror into the world the fundamental reality that we cannot be who we're created to be and we cannot do what we've been created and called to do except in the presence of loving diverse community in fact it's it's kind of right there male and female he created them which yes on the one hand means that both men and women are equally always entirely the same in the image of god that every human being you've ever met is individually a manifestation of the image of god to the same degree But there's a sense of that and in the middle that seems to suggest that it's males and females. It's when you join people together in diverse community that the image of God is fully manifested. That we can only really be in the image of God if we are living in community that is on the one hand loving and on the other hand diverse. This is what Paul seems to be getting at in Romans chapter 12. He's describing the kind of community that the church is intended to be, to reflect God's image into the world. And he says this, verse 9, he says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Paul says, listen, You want to know what kind of community reflects the image of God into the world. It's the the kind of community in which love is sincere, good, devoted, humble, generous, and hospitable and welcoming and opening to all. It's a community that's intended to be loving. It's a community that's intended to be diverse. Earlier in that chapter, he says this, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul says we are joined together in the indivisible bond of love. And yet, simultaneously, we are joined together as a diverse community where each of us has a uniqueness that is in and of itself our gift to the community. What makes you different than everybody else is precisely the thing that makes you a gift to all of the rest of us. You're what the rest of us don't have. We live together in community that is at one and the same time loving in this sincere and good and genuine, devoted, um, humble, generous, hospitable way in spite of and precisely because of the diversity and the differences and the uniquenesses of each one of us. That's the kind of community in which we image God into the world and experience the fullness of what it means to be a human being. So how do we live in that kind of community? Well, Jeff said last week, for each of the things that we're going to talk about in this series, our church has a program, something that we're inviting you into, that is meant to help you um, engage in the practices that develop the habits that form the behaviors that change who we are. And so we have Sunday services in which we practice worship that form um, habits in us that shape our behaviors until all week long we're the kind of people who are living in ongoing relationship with God, practicing the presence of God every moment of every day. Well, as far as community goes, in our church we have a program called Life Groups. And some of you have just gone to a lifeline and hopefully got hooked up with Life Groups. If you haven't, email your location pastor and say, I need to get into a Life Group. But we have this program where we join people together in community as a, as a place for us to do the practices that help us learn how to be people who live in community. And there's three of them that we're going to talk about this morning. The first one is this. You want to experience a life in, in loving, diverse community that causes you to flourish as a human being and, and be a reflection of who God is in the world, to be filled with the life of God and to radiate the life of God in the world. Number one, you got to show up. you got to show up for community. you got to be there. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching, the writer of the Hebrews says, if you're going to become the person God has created you to be, you have to be committed to not giving up meeting together. You've got to have to be committed to showing up. Which means, I think, at least two things. Number one, it means actually being physically, geographically available to be in relationship with other human beings. Showing up is an act of rebellion against the culture of busyness in our world. So many of us find it so easy, myself included, to slide into this mode where we're just too busy for relationships. To experience the life that God has invited us into, we have to rebel against a culture of busyness. Um, Which I think we can do in two ways. You can learn to schedule your community. Just put it in the calendar. This is community time. This is when our life group meets, and that's not negotiable time for me. You can do that in relationships. My dad and I have been kind of lamenting back and forth and sort of blaming each other for the fact that our calendars don't line up very well and we find it hard to make space to be together and hang out and just to be in relationship and love each other face to face. Until we stumbled on the idea a couple weeks ago at breakfast, you know, if we just circle, you know, Friday at 10:30 and put it on the calendar, then every Friday at 10:30 we're just going to be in relationship. We're going to call or Skype or have a cup of coffee or, But Friday at 10.30, that's an immovable thing in my calendar because that's when I talk to my dad, right? That kind of thing. You can schedule community and you can put community right into your schedule. Like some things aren't movable, hockey practices, and they're just, there are things that we have, work and so on. So the question is, how can I do the things that I still need to do, but do them in community rather than doing them alone? So I have friends who bought headsets for their phones. And they committed to cleaning their houses at exactly the same time each week. And they call each other and they clean their individual houses in community with each other. That's when they get caught up and chat and talk and find out what's going on in each other's lives. We have to find ways to rebel against the culture of business. We have to find ways, secondly, to rebel against the culture of distraction. That even if you physically, geographically show up, you can still be not present. Emotionally to the conversation. Right? Studies have shown that an iPhone or a smartphone even face down on the table in between two conversation partners will diminish the level of trust, diminish the level of empathy, and will diminish the depth of the conversation that they share because it's this constant threat of distraction. Right? Put your phone away. Be present to the person you're present with, right? Don't answer that text. Don't answer that phone call unless it's you know, like a significant other. I will always answer a phone call from my wife even if just to say, hey, I'm in a conversation right now. I'll call you back in a bit. But let be present to the person that you're with. If you want to experience that sort of loving community in the midst of diversity that fills you with the life of God and radiates the life of God, you have to be committed to showing up, to being present for relationship. Number two, this, I never said this was complicated. Number two, you got to show up. You got to join in. You got to join in. You got to be committed to participate because you can show up and be a non-participant in relationship. Us introverts know how to do that, right? You sort of show up, and I get it, like from an extroverted point of view. I don't think extroverts often realize that introverts are way more engaged in the conversation than maybe they are uh, vocally representing. And yet at the same time, um, you have to at some point contribute something or else you're just a taker right And it's not just introverts, some people are takers because they don't participate in a group setting or whatever. Uh, some people are takers because they over participate. they just take all the available space and fill it up with words, and they never allow anybody else the opportunity. They never give space to anybody else, and that can be more of my failing in conversation. Some people are takers uh, because the size and scope of the need that they present to the group just sucks up all the available energy from everybody else. Um, you can't experience that sort of flourishing community unless you are in a relationship of give and take. Now, let it be said that there's a danger to being a giver too, an overgiver. There are people who give too much space. There are people who give too much Energy. There are people who are constantly giving to other people's needs, and you're gonna. That's not the recipe to flourishing either. You're gonna burn yourself out if all you do is give. The way these flourishing relationships work is if they're in the context of give and take. I love this verse, uh, written by Paul in Second Corinthians eight. He's talking about giving material things, but I think it applies to all of our relationships. He says this. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved of their poverty while you are hard-pressed. Suddenly you're financially you know, in a bad place because you've been given so much to other people. He says, But that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Paul says, Listen, the way these relationships work is on the basis of equality. That what you have to give... You offer to other people who have a need, but they simultaneously and sometimes in a balance back and forth. Because obviously there are times when you're just needy and you need the group more than you have to offer. You just don't have anything to offer because of where your life is. And that's fine for a season. That's Life goes that way. And while they have plenty and you have a need, they pour into you, but there comes a time where... You have something that the group needs and you pour it back into them. It's that give and take of reciprocity, of mutuality, of equality, where, both, where all people are giving and taking. And so here's the, the commitment that we invite you into. What if in every one of your relationships, you, except in those exceptional seasons where you just need people to pour into you, you give 1% more than you take. What would that do to your relationships if you gave 1% more than you took from everybody else? What would that do if you were the person who asked one more question to hear somebody else's story? You were 1% more curious about their life than you wanted them to be curious about your life. You asked one more question than the number of statements you gave about your own story. What if you were the kind of person who offered one more bit of support than what you needed from the group on average? What if you were the kind of person who initiated contact, relationship, one more time than Rather than waiting for people to initiate a relationship with you. Because this could be the most frustrating thing. I've talked to people in our community about this. How they say, I feel like I'm always the one who's calling. And nobody's calling me back. That if I didn't call, no one would invite me out for coffee. Well, I, I've said to people, you've got to confront that with your friend. And say, listen. This is how I feel, and maybe it's not true, but either that has to change or our relationship is going to change because I just can't continue to be on the giving end all the time. I need to feel like you are 1% more interested in making contact with me than you are in waiting for me to make contact with you, and I will do the same. Right? What, if you were one, what if you invited people into your home one time more then, pe- then you got invited into other people's home. How would it transform your relationships if you gave 1% more than what you took from the relationship? It would radically transform your experience. You got to show up, you got to join in. Thirdly, you got to be real. You got to be willing to be honest about you, about life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just be honest. In James chapter 5, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Now that word confess, that doesn't mean the next time you're together with your friends or you're at a, a life group meeting. That doesn't mean that you're sharing all your deepest, darkest secrets with the group. The word confess literally means admit out loud to what's true and real. That's what it means. Admit out loud, acknowledge, own, be honest out loud about what is true and real. And when it says confess your sins, sin, that's just the ways in which our lives are missing the mark of the life that God wants for us. So be willing in relationship, in this loving, supportive, diverse community, to to be honest out loud about the ways in which your relationship with God is missing the mark the ways in which you've been apathetic and different, the ways in which you feel like God is distant and absent, the ways in which you're struggling with questions and doubts, whatever it is, if you're angry with God, whatever it is, just be honest. Be honest about what's real about your relationship with yourself, about your guilt and your shame. Be honest about your fears and your sadnesses. Be honest about your relationships with other people. What relationships are broken right now? What ones are teetering? Be honest about your relationships with the world, about your apathy and indifference towards what's going on in the world or your antipathy and hate that you feel towards certain groups. Just be honest. And the reason we don't do it is because we're afraid. We're afraid that we'll be judged. Right? We're afraid that we'll be rejected for being honest because of the ugly bits. It's interesting because three chapters earlier, James addresses that issue within the community. He says this, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says within the community of faith, your experience should never be one of judgment, only ever always of mercy. In fact, James says, God will judge the person who has judged you for being honest about what's real in your life if you receive anything but mercy from the community, they are not being Jesus to you. And you can feel free to call that out and to say, I'm feeling judged right now just for being honest about who I am and what my life is right now. Because mercy ought to triumph in the community of faith. Just be honest. And what you will be greeted with when the community is reflecting the life of God, you'll be greeted with the kind of mercy that manifests itself first and foremost in the form of prayer, where we lift each other up into the presence of God for that healing to flow into our hearts, our souls, and our lives. That's what it means to flourish as a human being, to show up, to join in, And to be real and to be experienced within the community what it means to be filled with the life of God and to radiate the life of God into the world. I heard a story a little while ago about Mike and Mary who attended our Vineland location until just recently. They moved out east because of work. Mike and Mary showed up a little while ago from Arizona. They were kind of transplanted Niagara and they didn't really know anybody and they found their way to our vineland location invited by somebody that they had met from our community and they ended up in our vineland location and decided that they were going to join in or they were going to show up and they showed up not just on the community at sunday morning they showed up to a lifeline and they got themselves connected into a life group they made the commitment not just to show up they made the commitment to join in to be full participants in the community and as they participated in these relationships of give and take what people around them began to discover was that they were in a mode where they needed to be takers because of their newness to the community because they had nowhere to live because you know they Mike wasn't working he didn't have employment all lined up and whatever and so there were folks in the community who said you know what I can I can contribute to that, and kind of took them along and helped them find a place to live and helped them find work when the employment status got all sorted out. They showed up, they joined in, and they committed themselves to being real. They tell the story of how one Sunday morning after the service, someone tapped them on the shoulder and said, "Hey, you know how are you doing?" And after the you know the standard fine, it was like, "No, no, 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 no. How are you doing?" in that moment, they said they had the choice to either be real or to not. And they said, well, you know what? All this transition and this change, this, everything that's been going on in our lives has been super stressful. And it's been, really been hard on our relationship. We're really struggling right now. And the, that couple prayed with them. And they began to experience the healing of a community. When Mike and Mary left in May, I said to a circle of life group leaders in Vineland, the thing we're going to miss the most is the people, the love that surrounded us while we were here. And Rick, our location pastor in Vineland, talked to Mike and Mary just a week ago. And they said we would give anything to feel the love of the community that surrounded us in Vineland. Because they showed up and joined in and decided to be real, and because Vineland surrounded them, and people showed up at Lifeline and welcomed them into the group, people joined in to Mike and Mary's journey and helped them meet the needs that were confronting them, and they decided to get real and to ask them how they were really doing. That's what the community looks like. And if we can learn in the context of loving diversity, embracing each other's uniqueness In this indivisible, unbreakable love, that's when we begin to experience what it looks like to be filled with the life of God that radiates the life of God to the world. Let's pray together for that. Father, you are community. With the Son and the Spirit, you are love. You are relationship. Indivisible, unbreakable love amongst a distinct and diverse community. We hunger for that. We're built for that. We made for that. We ache for it in our spirit. I just want to pray for everybody who's sitting in this room right now, surrounded by people and utterly alone. I want to pray for those who feel like they've been showing up and who feel like they've been joining in, who feel like they've been trying to be real and they haven't found someone to reciprocate that. They feel left out and pushed to the side. I want to pray for those who feel insecure and inadequate, who feel like they don't... Have anything to contribute? I want to pray for those who feel overwhelmed by their calendar, distracted by everything swirling around them. I want to pray for those who are afraid to be vulnerable. Fill us with your life, fill us with your spirit, fill us with everything that we need to live into the kind of community you've created us to be for our sake, for each other's sake. And for the sake of the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.